All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. What'd you do for the uh, 4th of July? Did you go crazy? It didn't have that... I don't know where you live, but the vibe out here in the L.A. area with the fireworks uh, was that... uh, this might be the last 4th of July ever. I don't know what you were feeling, but the urgency, the chaos, the sheer length. Like, generally I go to a 4th of July party, but this year it wasn't so much a, a, as a party as it was just eight of us up on the hill. Same place, my buddy Dan's house and Jen. Eight of us. Distanced, masked for the most part, up on the hill watching the fucking chaos never seen more fireworks over highland park and if you've been listening to me for years you know it's a bit of a thing but this year was like this is it man this might be the last time we ever fucking get to blow this shit up like this let's fucking do it today on my show on this show the one you're listening to i'm going to talk to john legend that guy is the nicest guy in the world and publicly he's the nicest guy in the world you see him you feel better it's like seeing some sort of buddha or uh or like beacon of light and uh sure enough he's he's kind of like that kind of like that i enjoy talking to him made me feel better because it's very difficult to uh to sort of just deal with this full-on brain fuck of this current moment in history. It's just relentless. Relentless. And it just every it just feels more and more out of our control because of the mass popularity of stupidity and uh believing in entitlement based fairy tales or dum dum Christian eschatology or fascist visions of white monoculture and or just fuck it. Fuck it all. I can definitely understand that last one a little. And a little bit of the uh, entitlement-based fairy tales one. Fuck it. Just the spread. It's just... Ugh, I can't... I know a couple people that got the bug now. A couple of comics went out and did the work and got the fucking virus. Checking in with them to see how that's going. And I'm sure to say, hey, idiot. How you feeling, dummy? I oh by the way I left you hanging on I got the COVID uh, test back on uh, Wednesday night but too late to put it in the um, the recording I tested negative as of Wednesday and um, okay but it's day to day with that shit it's all relative to you know not you know not uh, not going out you know anywhere not talking to anyone, not certainly not being maskless anywhere, which I wouldn't anyway, not rubbing my face on uh, the surface of an infected person. Ugh. On on a lighter note, uh, Monkey is, is still with us. My cat is still with us. Buster is still an asshole, but Monkey is uh, okay. He's got the asthma bad, but uh, he, he, he keeps hanging on. He'll spend some time in the closet, a little time under the bed, and then some time on the bed, maybe a little time downstairs. But again, I'm just trying to accept that this is an older cat, not a tragic situation. It's not some sort of extension of the passing of uh, my girlfriend right into this cat. Like I'm just being 
clobbered with uh, the things I love leaving. I'm not connecting them anymore. And I understand what's happening. I'm okay. I'm a little grounded. There's one thing about grief is it will definitely land you in you. It's like that moment right before you know you're going to get into an accident. That immediacy. Grief kind of feels like that. That type of presentness when it comes over you. Grief will definitely land you in you. That's what I feel. And I miss Lynn. And I did something the other day. You know, she used to make these stocks. She's very into this bone broth business. And she kind of was a big part of her, her, her way of eating. And she would save all these pieces of squash and sweet potatoes and fennel bulbs and parsnips and all these leftover, you know, chicken carcasses and that. So there's several bags of, you know, squash guts and things in the freezer. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to bring her to life. I'm going to make her soup. I did it. I went out and had a bunch of chicken backs frozen and three or four chicken carcasses. Got those going for about eight hours and threw in a couple of bags of uh, Lynn's uh, squash guts and frozen vegetable pieces. Cooked that overnight. Threw some thyme in, some bay leaves like she did. Now I've got uh, I've got a living sort of um, nourishing bit of Lynn with me now i froze a bunch of it got some in the freezer i can heat it up like it is add some chicken i can add it to greens i can whatever but the nourishing beauty of the lynn shelton bone broth squash stock is alive and with me today i'm happy to have the soup i'm happy to receive all the love and condolences still and i got this interesting email From this guy, Stephen, he said, today is the 49th day, this was a few days ago, since Lynn died in the Buddhist tradition, and I'm a practicing uh, Jubu, he says, she has been moving through the bardos and is now free to move on. Thank you again for your excellent podcast and genuine honesty. Blessing, Stephen. She moved through the bardos. I don't know what any of that means, but does that mean like, okay, so she went through the whatever happens between life And after you die, what happens at the beginning of after you die? Now she's free to move on. Does that mean reincarnation? Does that mean she's shopping for a new vessel right now, Lynn? Does that mean she's sort of circling uh, the the sphere, the globe, the cosmos, looking for that moment of conception, sort of eyeballing the many people fucking here and there and wondering, like, where do I go? Where do I where's my next vessel? I don't know how it works. I'm speculating. I'd like her to be part of that process. I'd like to think that she's uh, out there with her sense of perception and consciousness deciding, you know, which would be a good vessel for her. I hope she picks uh, an interesting new vessel, perhaps another gender, another ethnicity, the next phase. Not an animal. I I think that's punishment, isn't it? Maybe. I don't know how it works, but it was I, I was happy to hear that. But ultimately, I hope that uh, your fourth was okay. My fourth was, uh, you know, like I just said, I went to that thing. But earlier, it seemed I had a very German-based fourth for some reason. I, I sat on my porch and listened to uh, the first four can records, and then I finished watching the Marriage of Maria 
Braun, Fassbender film. Been kind of a little obsessed with Fassbender. Watched Veronica Voss last week. I've always been sort of obsessed with him, but now because of the Criterion Channel, I'm wrapping my brain around the Fassbender oeuvre. Is that how you say it? Great stuff. It's great. Real art, man. Real film art. Like what? Like what is that? Why? What? Huh. And he just did this. He decided and he did. Yeah. So, look. The new album is called Bigger Love. Uh, It's available now wherever you get your music. And I spoke to John Legend uh, the night after the BET Awards where he won Video of the Year for Hire. Uh, That's not for Hire. He didn't get hired. It's for the song Hire. And this uh, this talk obviously took place before his friend Kanye decided to uh, run for president. This is uh, me uh, and John Legend coming up. John, how are you? How you doing, Mark? I'm good. Good to see you, sir. It's good to see you, sir. Hold on. I think I was recording all this time another interview. (laughs) Yeah, I never stopped that one. Okay. Lots of things recorded. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to save that one. I've done that. Who knows what they're going to hear. Usually it's hours of nothing. Yeah, I was actually in an interview after that one, so they're just going to hear the next interview, and they're going to be so annoyed. Why? Because you did you did you talk more on that one? No, it's just about a completely different subject. They're like, "Why is this here?" <laughs> but anyway, here we are. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, what other subject could you be talking about? Is there something we need well, to know? Are you a specialist of some kind? Uh, well, I uh, I'm developing a coronavirus vaccine. Oh um, my god! <laughs> There's no um, end to the talent. <laughs> no, honestly, I so my interview was with the PGA uh, about my uh, uh, the Pro- Producers Guild about my uh, production company, and it was me and my fellow uh, producing partners, and we were like mentoring some up and coming young producers. The producers now. Okay, well, a couple of things. I listened to the new record, and I and I and I had a, a realization during uh, the listening uh-huh. that if you're uh, you know if you're not in a relationship or you're heartbroken for whatever reason, I don't know if this is a great record for you. I- <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because um, you threw one end- you, you threw one in at the end. Uh, the end of the album, the whole, the whole, the last like three of the last four songs are yeah, about yeah about missing someone, right, uh, right, uh, yeah, being nostalgic, uh, missing yeah. your first love. So uh, there's some of that, but definitely a lot of it is more toward you know the situation I'm in, which is you know I'm happily married in love, and and uh, and I can write some celebratory songs about that sometimes. No, I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. record, but uh, yeah. being a little heartbroken at this point in time, I, you know, a yeah. lot of and knowing knowing how beautiful the record is, there were definitely moments where it's like, oh yeah, I had I had that, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> you know. And I, 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 now that you say that, I, my condolences first of all because I heard what happened. Oh, thanks. And 
And then uh, when when you listen to that song, Remember Us, I actually cry listening to that song now, the song Remember Us, which is uh, number 13 on the album. Yeah. Uh, that one, that'll hit you pretty hard if you listen to it too much. So uh, yeah, I don't know if that's good or, it's good or bad for you right now. Oh, I don't know. I felt like um, it was actually pretty good because I feel like you have to have these feelings. And I imagine that love songs in general are, are, are just as popular for people who are longing for it as, as they are for people who are in it or think they have that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. that a lot of love songs are, are aspirational. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And I've written love songs when I was very, very much single at the time yeah. as well. <laughs> and, and and some of it's like, like you said, imagining what it could be like. <laughs> sure. Now, you know, it's in the record starts out with the, you know, with a bit of uh, I only have eyes for you. And yes. so is that is that the window through which you work this thing? Because that song is a, like I, I just re-listened to that because. You know, I had to put it together and then, you know, listen to the Flamingo song. And that that's one of the, the, the most beautiful love songs ever written in pop music, really. Well, I Only Have Eyes For You is magical. And it uh, it's uh, kind of from an era that I still like. You know, I love doo-wop. I love uh, those tight harmonies. I love um, my my dad uh, raised me on Motown, like the Temptations, those yeah. male the male quartet type groups. And so when I think about my musical heritage and my musical upbringing, yeah, um, that's what I'm thinking about. Um, and gospel, of course, as well. But even gospel incorporated a lot of those same kinds of sure. harmonies. And uh, and so uh, if you're getting to know me as a musician, knowing that about me, I think is helpful to understanding everything that I do musically. And what I loved about that particular song was bringing that old stuff to a new uh, kind of uh, world of music where uh, the beats have the 808s and it sounds of like trap hip hop mixed with uh, these old sounds of doo-wop and it works perfectly. Yeah, I, I think the first time I, I ever witnessed that sort of unfolding, sadly, because it, it just it, it wasn't really my world was in um, that the story about, you know, uh, N.W.A., that movie, oh, yeah. when Dre, you know, first did that in, the, in, in whatever, you know, the, it wasn't a club, but he was started to mix those beats with the older yeah. songs. And mm -hmm. it was that, that moment of sort of like, oh, my God, you can yeah. just... Well, hip-hop is basically founded on that. You right. Know, so, so much of hip-hop was literally a DJ uh, playing old records and a guy rapping over it, or the, the guy DJing was also the rapper. Uh, and so they were taking this music that people already knew and then putting their own spin on it, rapping over it, scratching over it, and that is so much of the foundation of hip-hop. And so I've worked with a lot of producers who also work in hip-hop, and so a lot of times they'll be the kinds of guys that'll use samples a lot, and it's always that interesting blend of old and new. And then, of course, you mentioned Dr. Dre, uh, we used the same sample he used uh, on track number two on the album because he used an old um, David McCallum song called The Edge uh -huh. uh, to make a song that's even more famous called The Next Episode with Snoop Dogg. And we used that same sample on our second song on the album, a song called Actions. 
But I think what's also, though, interesting is that, you know, in that first song, Ooh La, that, you know, it, it is sort of a, a an homage to those songs, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not doing like a, a standard sort of hip hop song. You're doing another one of those kind of songs for a yes. contemporary audience. Yeah, but we we intentionally had sections where we did a little bit of both. Right. So so the intro and the and the pre-chorus uh, and the chorus sound like a doo-wop song. I wanted to sing it like a doo-wop singer. I wanted the lyric to sound, sound like it wouldn't have been out of place uh, on certain parts in the old song. But then we have a section where we just kind of drop it low and it's like spin around, let it bounce, um, <laughs> up and down, think we found some, slack it, play it, rub it down to the sound of, yeah. and then go back to the doo-wop. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it's like intentionally going back and forth between the worlds. But I mean, it really strikes me, though, you know, I don't know how you pull it off. I mean, you, you, you obviously work constantly, but it does seem that, you know, you are able to to bring together, you know, all of the, the different elements of the music you grew up in and the music that you live in and the people that you work with into your own voice that is uniquely yours. But it it's sort of a, you have a much broader palette than a lot of artists. It seems to me that that multi-generations can can listen to a John Legend song and enjoy it the same way that it come that it's sourced in a history that everybody's familiar with, a language of pop music that uh, that just about anyone can relate to. It doesn't seem like anyone's going to walk away from a John Legend song and go, fuck that guy. What the fuck? is he? <laughs> fuck. There's somebody saying that. I promise. Um <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> I I pissed off real estate agents this weekend. Uh, oh really? On my, on my Twitter. Well, I was talking because uh, the uh, Texas Realty Association said they weren't going to say master bedroom anymore, and and because it you know evokes language of slavery and all this stuff. And I was like, uh-huh. Are you guys serious? Like, please work on actual real problems, and not whether or not we call it a master bedroom. And uh, and then uh, I said, you know, the a real problem with realtors is that um, they've helped serve the function of, of uh, housing segregation and discrimination in in in, in the U.S. because uh, a lot of times they were guilty of steering, which is the process of uh, not showing black people all the properties they're qualified yeah, for yeah. because they didn't want them in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. I said, that's a real thing to work on. It's a real thing that still exists. Uh, Newsday did a really uh, in-depth article about that uh, happening in Long Island uh, just recently, and it happens all over the country. I said, why don't you guys work on the real problem? And they were really mad at me for saying that. But uh, Really? Uh, they're, probably, they're probably saying, fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that, Fuck that guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> and we're keeping master bedroom. <laughs> well, I was fine with master bedroom. I was like, work on the real problem. Don't worry about no, master bedroom. No, I get bedroom. it. I get it. I mean, <laughs> well, it seems like there's a lot of those sort of, uh, you know. Uh, Cosmetic band- changes. Band-aids for, for uh, little yes. things. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I, I love the new album. And, and also, like, along the same lines is that uh, it, it's very hard to sort of, because when someone says, like, you know, what, you know, what, what style of music does John Legend do? I mean, you do most of them, right? It's, it's, well, I think it's rooted in black music, but I, I grew up with gospel, soul, and doo-wop. Those were like the main things that were in my house. Those are the things my dad played, and those were my foundation. But it seems so like I, that Gary that Gary Clark song is almost a rock song, really. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've listened to everything. It's all in me. I hear all of it, and 
And, you know, um, when I collaborate with other artists, they can bring out different things in me. And, and so working with Gary brings out one thing, working with, you know, uh, Raphael Sadiq brings out another thing. Uh, and it just, I'm, I'm open to those kinds of collaborations where they push me in different directions that will make the album more interesting. Well, I mean, I think that's a, that it's a sign of your, uh, I guess your your uniqueness that that you can. It seems like collaborating is is really you know where you started. I mean, it seems like that's yeah. the foundation of who you are. And and what fascinated me in looking at some of the people you collaborated with is that you know, as genius as many of the people you work with are, these are some difficult people. So I. <laughs> Yes. Who are you thinking about? <laughs> well, let's just generalize. So, but but I mean, the fact is, is that somehow or another, you know, and I have to assume it's not just talent. Uh, it you have an ability to to sort of uh, to work with, collaborate, understand as much as you know. It may bring at this point in your career, collaborators may bring something to you, but you brought something to them, and I have to assume it was something other than just your specific talent. I mean. They they can't be easy people to please some of them and and you have to you must have some sort of muscle that enables you to to kind of <laughs> kind of you know create symbiosis with even the difficult people. Yeah, I I was I was thinking about that and I was like, well, what makes me uh, the kind of collaborator that works with all types of people? And I think part of it is being good at what you do well. So like, I'm a good pianist. I'm a good singer. I'm a good songwriter. Yeah, but. Also having humility because uh, when you have enough humility um, to be open and to really listen to other people's ideas and really take it in and realize that you'd be better off if you guys did something together than if you did it separately. Uh, having that sense of humility, um, I think, makes it so that collaborations can go really well. And really let the idea win, you know, the best idea win. I, yeah, but, but that's not something you're born with. Um, you, I think... You're probably born with a uh, disposition in that direction, but you get better at it too because you uh, you you see what works in these situations. And if you actually want it to work, and you let your ego kind of take a back seat, and you actually want it to just create something great, uh, then you you start to figure out what things you did in those sessions that made it work out. Huh. And uh, I think part of it is that openness, that humility, saying let's. Let my ego take a back seat to an extent. Well, yeah, I, I can see that, but like, I, I'm just curious about like how, you know, because you know, some people can work with other people and some people can't, you know, and yeah. some people, you know, uh, uh, they can work with other people sort of, you know, uh, begrudgingly because they have yeah. to. Uh, but like, you know, when you when you were growing up, you know, what was um, when did you start doing the music? Like, who who was your your major your your primary champion? So my grandmother was one of the first champions. My mother uh, was also. So uh, my maternal grandmother, she was the organist at my church, and she helped teach me how to play gospel music. My mother was the choir director, and then my dad played the drums at church. And so we grew up in church. My grandfather was a pastor, so we literally like the first family of the church. Was he, and, uh, uh, was he a yelling pastor? He was not. He was very much a, more of a teacher. He's more a professorial. Oh, so, oh okay. Uh, he was, and, and I think he actually 
lost out on members because he was so mellow. Like a lot, he didn't put on a show like right. a lot of preachers that yeah. I, we grew up around. So you would go to other folks' church, and, and their, their 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 pastor was definitely more charismatic uh-huh. than my grandfather was. But he was he was very bright and very well read and very uh, methodical about teaching. You know the things he had learned in the Bible, but. Uh, other preachers were way more entertaining, no doubt about it. So there was a lot of Jesus around. Oh, so much Jesus. So uh, <laughs> it's crazy. After all that, I ended up playing Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar. You had um, to. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, you know, as a kid, though, you know, that was everything. And our church that we grew up in was very, very fundamentalist. So it's called the Pentecostal Church, the Pentecostal Assemblies of the he World. Was, he was a Pentecostal pastor and not charismatic. Yes, exactly, he was like an oddball, <laughs> but he was very, but he was very much fundamentalist, like the rest of his peers. So you know, women couldn't wear skirts above their knees. Uh, they frowned upon jewelry and makeup, and and uh, they frowned upon even listening to secular music. Really, going to the movies, like it was very, very serious uh for the first um you know eight to ten years of my life i'd say about 10 years but this is your family so like so this is your your mother's father's the pastor yes my mother's father and 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 you're growing up in this house and there you yes. can only listen to church music basically uh, yeah at home yeah and who taught you how to play the piano so my grandmother was part of it and then i also took lessons at a, a local music store so i was learning classical music there uh, and uh, my grandmother's teaching me gospel music. So when did the dam break with the popular music? <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents got divorced, so everything went to shit after that. What, so uh, What happened? They, they got divorced uh, after my grandmother died. My wow. mother actually got really depressed after that, and things just started to fall apart in our home and our family. Um, but she, yeah, she died of a natural cause? Like, what happened? She, just, she died early. She was like 58 years old, oh. and she had... She had a heart failure, and uh. so it was shocking. It was tragic. My mom was extremely close with her, mm. and it just sent her into a spiral. And so we were estranged from my mom literally for like 10 years. Because she got so depressed? She got so depressed. She was on drugs for a while. It was like a real mess. Uh, and this was after being like the perfect mom before that. She was homeschooling us. She was uh, you know, directing the choir. She was like exemplar mother uh for a long time and then after her mother passed away she just went into the spiral and we lost her for a while and she's back now thankfully and she's healthy and happy and where did she everything's go fine she was in our hometown like in springfield ohio but we barely even saw her she was um addicted to drugs and it was like a a, a tough time and you really and you, and and who was who looked out for? Was her father still alive? Was the pastor still her around? Her father was alive, uh, but he was starting to get uh, into dementia at, at that point. Oh my God! Um, so who was taking care of you? So we were living with my dad, oh. and um, there are four of us kids, and he was a single dad uh, after they got divorced. And that's when you know the rules kind of uh, disappear. Once once the parents get divorced, no one's checking to see if you're still listening to secular music. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, and by that time, you know, we're going to you know middle school and high school. We're listening to what our friends are listening to, uh, which at the time, you know, it's like early '90s. Uh, so it's like Jodeci, R. Kelly, Boys to Men, Mariah Carey. Uh-huh. Whitney, uh, yeah. some hip hop. So I didn't listen to a lot of hip hop as a kid. 
I started listening to that more as, uh, you know, in my late teens. And also the old-timey stuff. Yes, and, and so my dad was always, you know, even despite uh, being part of a church where he wasn't supposed to, he was always still into Motown and and the old time stuff. He listened to Nat King Cole, right? And Johnny that's because I hear that stuff, man. I hear that stuff yeah. in you. Yes, it's very much in me, and I, and I uh, those artists are still part of who I am. But also Marvin Gaye, Nina Simone, Curtis Mayfield, Smokey. Um, those are some other artists that are very much in my head when I'm writing and when I'm recording my voice and all those other things. It's just it's it, it it is sort of uh, amazing that you know you I like to to be an artist like yourself who you know I can feel the presence of all that stuff you know mm-hmm. you know the ones that I know and even the ones that mm-hmm. I don't know but again you know it 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 is all in service of your unique voice which is not it's not easy and and it's amazing strength that the whatever that humility you're talking about whatever was at the or the egolessness you're talking about that enables you to collaborate, you know, at the bottom of that, you're, you're, there's no, it's not an empty uh, well there. You know, it's like a pretty, pretty strong foundation in you. Well, yeah, I think, and I credit my parents for that and, and just me loving the music. Like I, I fell in love with it early and I never stopped. I always wanted to be on stage. I always wanted to be uh, leading the choir. I always wanted to be uh, winning the talent show. I wanted to be, uh, my dream when I was like seven was to be on Star Search. <laughs> oh, wow. You remember Star Search with Ed McMahon? Of course. And, uh, Comedians and I, used I, to do it too. Yeah, of course. Chappelle was on there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are, these are, these were the dreams I had when I was young and I never gave up on it and just kept working at it. And here I am. What happened to your, with your mom? You, she would just come in and out of your life or what? Yeah. By that point, um, like barely saw her like I would go months without seeing her and she was living and our town's not big uh you know it's like 70,000 people yeah but uh uh I would barely see her in a year uh was she just strung uh, out the whole time yeah she was and emotionally volatile and like not even that volatile more like it was sad like I oh. I didn't want to be around her it was like right. uh it was like it was a source of shame at the time it yeah was, uh and I was trying to like put my head down and succeed in school I was like a straight-a student and you know I was like the middle child that that tried to hold everything together oh, right. and be be mr. perfect all the time and and my mom was like at the time it was just like it just made me feel bad and so I just tried to avoid seeing her and just put my head into school and music and everything I think we just we just found it Mm-hmm. The uh, your amazing ability to collaborate is middle child. In middle child, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was a I was a fight breaker upper between my older brother and my younger brother. Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah. The, the diplomat. The uh, let's yes. uh, let's bring it all together. We're one family yes. here. Yeah, conciliation, <laughs> and, mediation, and also order. Order. Yeah. Can we just like can we close the gap? You know, can we just bring it in tight? And, yes. You know, <laughs> keep exactly. the chaos out. Yes. So, but well, then how did it kind of turn around? Did your mom get cleaned up or did she? She like, got cleaned up um, and uh, she never went to rehab. She didn't go to rehab, but she got cleaned up. It was like, really, she had a come to Jesus moment, literally. Like she got back in touch with her faith and and uh, that was helpful. She started to surround herself with people that could help her um, come back. And she came back. She and. 
she it's like she's never used since uh she looks incredible she looks younger than she is um you know she's 65 years old looks younger than that she you if you look at her now you, you wouldn't even be able to tell she went through all that but she really did for quite a while was she like destitute to that was that like to that point kind of thing uh like yeah she was not not living a good life she was right. in a rough neighborhood uh on drugs and just it was not good but never got busted or anything oh yeah she went to jail oh yeah yeah for how long she ne- she was never in for like an extended sentence it was more like you know they knew her for, down there in for a couple of days and right then right i didn't even know what was happening at the time yeah uh because um like i said i was avoiding seeing her yeah 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 and so it was all happening when during this time and i didn't know about it until later after she was clean your dad told your dad knew though I don't know that he knew all of that, that was going on. So do they now? Do, do they get along now, your folks? Or everybody gets along. Uh, my mom's very much in my kids' lives. Oh, it's uh, great. And uh, and and all her other grandkids' lives. She has uh, what ten of them now. Oh my and, god. Um, and uh, she's she's uh, like I said, you would not be able to tell that any of this happened before. And your dad's around too. Oh yeah, absolutely. He's seventy and very healthy, and he's good. But they're not together. They're not together. He's remarried. Uh, they actually got back together when she first came back. So they got back together, got remarried. He had been through a, a one stepmom uh, uh-huh. um, uh, uh, during the interim period. Yeah. And then they got back together, but figured out they actually didn't want to be together anymore. And they got divorced a second time. And then my dad has since remarried recently uh, with someone he met on a dating app. Wow. <laughs> Modern yeah. love. Modern it's, love. It's so great that they're a part of your life and the kid's life and that yes. it worked out. Oh, and so she stuck with Jesus is what happened. Oh, yeah. And uh, she definitely did. And, and you know, obviously, uh, there's all kinds of reasons why people decide to, to get clean. Yeah, sure. And there's all course. kinds of uh, methods by which they do so. But yep. she didn't go to rehab. Um, but she was able to, through faith and, and l- the, the love of her f- friends and family, was she was able to come back now with your work so you started on piano you stick with piano is that your do you play other instruments i do not the only time i uh took guitar lessons was to fake it for la la land and that was it uh, i haven't done any since then and you, you do you write all the songs on piano first um a lot of them are written on piano first but a lot of my songs are written in collaboration with other people so you know, they may play the guitar. And, right. Uh, so you write in the studio a lot? Yeah, I, I write in the studio and usually it's one or two other people in there with me. Um, and it's usually and sometimes we write with producers who their gift is more in creating cool instrumentals. And so uh, so they may play the keyboard. They may um, uh, be good with, you know, uh, rhythm and creating drum beats. Uh, and so uh, the collaborative process means we're all in this room together coming up with ideas, riffs, beats, uh, hook ideas, and then eventually a song comes from that. Yeah, so, so that's sort of what I was going to ask you at the beginning when we started talking about producers and you uh, supporting young producers with the uh, with the guild there, was that because I, I, I noticed on, on the records, especially on, on this new record, not only, like, on any given song, there's a half a dozen writers. So a lot of those, so it's the kind of division of labor in pop music these days. So, like I said, producers a lot of times will make tracks. 
and uh, sometimes they're making them with you in the room. You're writing the song together, and they're building an arrangement around it. And so they'll get writing credit for uh, composing that music and building that beat. But then the lyric and the melody is usually just written by you or you and one other person. Yeah. So most of the things that I actually sing, the things that come out of my mouth, the, the lyric and the melody, um, are usually written by just me or just me and one other person. But then the people that help create the music around it also get writing credit. So you often see like two or three other names. Right. Uh, um, and they're usually the producer and, and maybe their team. They yeah. help them create the arrangement. And then uh, sometimes we have samples. And so you'll see uh, the names of the people whose song we sampled in the writing credits as well. So like if you're looking at Ula, two or three of the names in that writing credit for that are the people who originally wrote I Only uh, yeah, Have Eyes Al- for You. Alexander Dubin and Harry Warren. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So those are guys that may not even be alive still that wrote the song many years ago. <laughs> right. And their, their estates are getting a little uh, a kickback from us sampling the song. Well, I guess it, like it's interesting that that producers are really you know musicians mostly in their own right. It's just that their instrument yes. their instrument is a, a bigger palette of possibilities. Yeah, and then sometimes their job is to hire people that, that make the music. So so sometimes the producer actually executes the actual instruments that you're hearing on the on the song. So a lot of producers play keyboards. A lot of them do drum programming, but they also have a rolodex uh, or what you know. Yeah. They have contacts in their phone, yeah. and uh, and they call up a live drummer, they call up a guitarist they like to work with, or they call up a, a string arranger they like to work with, and part of their job as a producer is to do that. But it's interesting because the thing I was talking about before uh, was the Producers Guild in TV and film, and so we were talking to uh, producers in that sense, but in the music business, of course, producers are the ones that bring the sound of the the track together or bring the sound of sure, the yeah, album together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did you, you how'd you learn all this shit, man? I mean it's like when did that start? <laughs> I mean was this like I, I know that you you did a track on Lauren Hill's album when you were like a yes. kid. But I mean before that, you know, was this w- w- were you learning how to do this? How did, was it through collaboration that you learned all this stuff? You start to learn it. You uh well when I was younger, I think I was learning just the ABCs of music. So uh, learning how to make a good song, learning how to collaborate with other musicians and make it all sound good together. What was the first time you said, like, this is how a song works? I mean, do you remember a song? like? You- I remember writing songs at, at probably 11 or 12, like just the silliest of love songs that you know, I thought would help me get a girl or something. Right. But you knew uh, there was a, you knew you needed a hook and a refrain. When did you start yes. to learn that stuff? Yeah. I started to figure it out then. Yeah. Um, and you, you start to get more kind of analytical and scientific about it as you keep going with it. And as you're exposed to more music and as you write more songs. And uh, for me, I started to get a kind of a pattern, a methodology in the studio where I pretty much write in the same way every time I go to the studio. Um, the the initial idea comes in different ways. Yeah. But once I'm fully executing the idea, it's almost always building the music first, building the melody, the rhythm of that vocal melody first, and then uh, scatting the, the pre-lyric, basically, uh, before you know what you're going to say, and then, uh, and then eventually writing the lyric. And I've been writing that way since, you know, probably age 16 or so and really I, so you don't like wake up in the middle of the night with a lyric 
uh, sometimes I'll have an idea, but I'll just write it down. Right. And then, or I'll record it into my phone, but I won't finish the song then. The finishing of it and the and the full execution of the uh, writing process usually happens in the same way. I'm usually in the studio, uh, the same order, basically the music first and the lyric. And I've been doing that since, uh, you know, since I can re- really remember writing as an adult. And I usually do it within a few hours. So it usually takes about three or four hours to fully write a song. Wow. That doesn't mean it's always going to be good. Yeah. But it's written. Right. And sometimes I'll, if I think it's good, but I need to change some of the lyrics, of course I'll change them. Um, and then some, I just, I'm like, oh, that didn't work out. Uh, I'm just going to scrap it. And there's lots of songs like that in my life where it was fine, but it wasn't good enough. And, and I just scrap them. So, well, yeah, eventually they'll they'll show up somewhere, probably. <laughs> yeah, the, after I die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone will release the scrapped songs of John Legend. Yes, exactly. But uh, so that it seems like the way you talk about it, like that's the job. The song is the job. Well, it's it's part of the job, and it's the it's it's also the joy for me. Yeah. Like I get so much joy from finishing a song, like. When I, not even just finishing the whole arrangement, but just finishing writing the song, yeah. composing the song, when it's done, it's very exciting. It, every time it's exciting. I'm sure. And, uh, and, then, and then you've had so many, so many hits. That's got like, to be the second wave of excitement. Here's the song. Well, you don't excited. even know. Yeah. You don't even know, though. It's like any of those songs can change your life, you know? Yeah. Um, but in the moment, you're just happy you've finished and it feels good in that moment oh yeah and it, it brings you a lot of joy so when was your first break that you can that you really kind of can identify well let's say this the first time i got to be on a major album was lauren hill's album in 1998 so i'm a, a student at the university of pennsylvania at the time i had started there in 95 i'm in my junior year and my uh, weekend job was as a um, director of music at a church in yeah. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton. So Scranton, Scranton is up, up, uh, up the interstate from Philly. And uh, it's famous for the office now, of course. But uh, uh, before that, I guess it was famous because Joe Biden was from there uh, originally. But anyway, uh, I would go up to Scranton every weekend and play for this church. And that helped, you know, pay my bills in school, helped me pay my... Uh, you know, help me eat during school. And also was it was uh, it was service. Weekend job. Doing yeah, it was service. And, and I got to make music and, and work with a choir and, and it was fun. Yeah. So one of the choir members was um, from North Jersey and she went to high school with Lauren Hill. Right. And um, she sang and yeah. Lauren Hill looked at her as a big sister And when Lauren was working on her first solo album after the huge success of the Fuji's album, The Score, uh, my friend asked me if I wanted to go uh, to the studio and meet Lauren and see what she was working on. Oh, my God. I'm like, of course, I would love to. Yeah. And so I go with her to, I think it was East Orange or one of the oranges uh, in Jersey. And... um, She's in the studio. Rohan Marley's there. Um, some other producers are there. Uh, musicians are there. And they're working on a song called Everything is Everything. Right. And um, this, uh, we didn't know what this song was going to be. I don't think they even knew the title at the time. But during one of their writing breaks, um, I uh, 
basically auditioned for Lauren Hill because my friend was like, Lauren, you got to hear my friend play and sing. So I sat down at this upright piano in the <laughs> yeah. studio and I sing a couple songs for her. Yeah. And uh, she liked it enough to ask me to play piano on the track she was working on at the time. And so my first claim to fame, going back to my senior year at Penn, was I'm on track 13 of this album that we all love. Right. Uh, the Miseducational Lauryn Hill playing piano on Everything is Everything. So that was my first big break. That's crazy uh, story. That's a crazy yeah. story. And then I auditioned for her band uh, to tour with her. So I was ready to drop out of school, go on the road with Lauryn Hill, but I got rejected. She picked somebody else to be the musical director of the band. And uh, so I finished school and graduated. Why? Do you ever think about what would have happened? Maybe. Yeah, who knows? I who wonder. Knows? I wonder. Who knows? It could have yeah. went the other way, John. It could have went. Who knows what would have happened? <laughs> <laughs> there, a lot of people believe that you're you're living that parallel life. That's that. That's also happening somewhere. Well, who knows? Yeah, know. The, yeah. the parallel universe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like to think about that too much. I have a hard enough time it's, with this one. My brain hurts when I hear that. Exactly. Stuff. So then, <laughs> like, and then. Could you use that as a reference? Did you use it as a reference? Was it? Oh, uh, I use the shit out of it. I use it all the time. <laughs> I was like, you may have heard me on track 13 on the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Yeah. And you got to remember, this is like album of the year. Yeah, She huge. won every, every Grammy. Right. Uh, and uh, it was just a phenomenon. So even having a, a, a sprinkling of a touch on that album was, uh, was, was useful. Gold dust. And, and it um, it led to other things, but it, it didn't lead to me getting a record deal as soon as I wanted one. So that was '98. I graduate college in '99, and I'm you know at this Ivy League school with all these high achieving kids, and they're all doing you know interviews for investment banks and consulting firms. And I'm like, well, um, I guess I need to get a job too because yeah. uh, music ain't paying the bills yet. Yeah. So I apply to work at Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and all these uh, major consulting firms. And uh, I got hired at Boston Consulting Group. This is like one of the top, you know, white shoe consulting firms. And did I get hired what? to work there. I, I'm like, you know, a junior, uh, you know, they bring you in to do like, analysis uh data crunching is that what you studied uh, uh no i was an english major but they hire <laughs> they hire liberal arts majors there they like people with kind of a diversity of backgrounds what was your focus as an english major in an ivy league what what was your african-american uh... literature and culture so you you pick the major and then you have a concentration and so within african-american literature and culture you read uh you know black novelists but you also um study black history and and uh and anthropology if you want and other who were your favorite kind of, writers of that of that uh, oh i loved uh tony morrison she's my all-time favorite yeah um, great great she and she's also from ohio like myself and she's one of the great novelists i think of any race no of for any sure culture uh in history so she's definitely uh one of my favorites and uh she i read her a lot when i was in school and um wrote about her in some of my papers and all yeah that sure good stuff. So, so that's my major, and I go to Boston for a year. So I'm literally working in Boston at Boston Consulting Group. They have offices all around the world, but I got hired in the Boston office. Boston's a rough, rough town. It's a little. It was. It wasn't the right town for me, for sure. So Philly was great. So yeah. I'm there. Philly was like I'm at Penn. The Roots are in town. I don't know them yet, but I know of them, and I and I see them doing open mics, and Jill Scott's there, and all these really talented soul yeah. artists are there. 
hip hop artists are coming to town to collaborate with the Roots and all these people. So you would, you know, see these open mic, open mics, and Common would show up, and and uh, D'Angelo would show up, and Erica Badu would show up. So all of these, all of these artists are really blossoming during this moment when I happen to be going to college in this city. And so I get to you just kind of soak it all in. I don't know all these guys yet. Uh, I want to know them. I want them to listen to me and check me out. But, you know, they have their own crew and, you know, it's hard to work your way in. But, you know, I'm seeing all of it and being inspired by all of it. And then I take this detour and take this job in Boston. And Boston wasn't the right city for me. It's you know? a very se- – I, I lived there for years. It's it's almost a yeah. segregated city. It's a very weird yeah. – uh, it's not – It's got that, and it's also not the best music scene. No, it just wasn't – It's a rock music scene. Yeah, and so um, I asked for a transfer to New York, so I ended up working in New York at Boston Consulting Group yeah. for two more years after my first year wow. in Boston. Really stuck with and, it, huh? And when I'm in New York – uh, I start really meeting the people that are going to change my life. How do you do so, that, though? You're just going out at night or you you know people? Yeah. Or, hmm. Going out at night, I started playing gigs. Um, I had guys that I had written with in Philadelphia, uh, and we put a little uh, band together. I was the I was the front man, and, and it was under my name. But, you know, they came out and played with me at little uh, clubs in New York. So if you've heard of Elbow Room or Downtime sure. or the Knitting Factory or SOB, I know or all those. Uptown, yeah, I was playing at all of them, um, and uh, you know they're right down the street from a lot of the comedy clubs you were probably sure. playing at the same time. Yeah, and um, so we're playing all these places, and um, I have a kind of a built-in fan base of just friends I went to college with, basically. Yeah, <laughs> um, the, ro- and, the, know, roaming, uh, the roaming 20 people that'll show up wherever you are? Well, you know, well, Penn, everybody goes to New York after Penn. So oh, literally, right. I'm getting like 50, 75, 100 people to show up just for you know, a 30-minute set for oh, me. That's great. Uh, and that's a good like way to kick it off because yeah. not a lot of new artists moving into New York would have that kind of built-in a group of people that would come see them. Yeah. So I was doing that. I was, uh, you know, selling CDs from my uh, from my apartment, going to the post office and mailing them off myself with the little foam, uh, the foam envelopes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A little website that uh, one of my friends from college created for me. Right. Yeah. And my and my roommate is a guy I went to college with and was roommates with in college, and his cousin is Kanye West. Come on. So, Come on. <laughs> so, uh, so Kanye grew up in Chicago, uh, is just about to have his big break as a producer, not as a rapper, but as a producer, making beats for uh, Jay-Z and, you know, some other Rockefeller artists. And he moves to New York. He actually moved to Newark, uh, New Jersey, but, you know, right across the, yeah. the tunnel. So... Um, he moves to Newark. I'm living in the East Village. Um, Where in the East Village? Seventh uh, Street and Second Avenue. I have two roommates that I went to college with. I lived you know on Second or- between A and B for a couple. Yeah, of years. so uh, you know where the Orpheum Theater is, where the Stomp uh, Show plays. Yeah, yeah, we were sure. right above, right above that. Oh, okay. So uh, we lived there. Two roommates, all working in the corporate world, but. Um, Devon Harris, who is Kanye's cousin, yeah, he by day is working at Price Waterhouse Coopers as a, as a consultant, and at night he's DJing and and making beats, and he's connecting me with his cousin, and his cousin um, moves to Newark, 
starts to blow up as a producer and we start writing together uh, my demo, which eventually became the basis for Get Lifted, uh, my first album. You and Kanye. And me and Kanye. A young I Kanye. Signed to, a young Kanye. I signed to his production company. Again, he's known more as a producer at this point. Right. And people are skeptical about him being a rapper. Um, and uh, he's he's starting to blow up and people are interested in you know, who who would he sign? Who would he work with? Sure. And so he gets a production deal, calls his company uh, Good Music, Getting Out Our Dreams. Yeah. And, uh, and he signs me as the first artist. And through his production company, I got signed to Columbia Records. And that was in May of 2004. That's a very, uh, Columbia is a very historically respectable. Uh, oh, of course. You know, Springsteen's label. there, uh, Bob Dylan, yeah. uh, so many major artists uh, uh, and, you know, Tony Bennett. There's just like a lot of pedigree there. Sure. Um, and uh, and so they signed me through Kanye's uh, production company and uh, Get Lifted came out seven months later. It was basically already written and most of it was recorded prior to me getting a record deal. And most and, of that uh, work you did with Kanye? Uh, you know. uh, he produced like four or five tracks and then a, a guy in Philly that I had been working with since college named Dave Tozer produce a few more you work Devon. with him a lot tozer yeah tozer i've written with him over the years we uh we've written together since 97 98 uh-huh devon uh you know the the roommate right. he produced a couple tracks as well and that was pretty much my brain trust oh and will i am actually from the black eyed peas because my new manager that i got in 2002 he also managed the black eyed peas and uh the first producer he thought to hook me up with was uh well, I am. So he actually worked with me on Ordinary People and uh, another song called She Don't Have to Know on the album. And so those were the four producers I collaborated with on my first album. And it was huge. It was huge. I won Best New Artist, uh, <laughs> yeah. got eight Grammy nominations, and uh, it was the, uh, the start of a, a really uh, rewarding career. Do you find that, like in the, on the album Evolver, I mean, do you find... You, I mean, it doesn't seem like you radically change, but you do kind yeah. of expand. Yeah, we expanded. Uh, I, I, the first single was a song called "Green Light," and it was that was definitely a departure. Uh, it was with uh, it was very up tempo, and people hadn't really seen me doing that. Yeah, Andre Three Thousand was on it, so that made it uh, a lot more of a, a splashier track. Is he a fun guy? And oh, he's incredible. He's creative, fun smart he's just uh he's kind of a recluse now you rarely see him uh aren't we all right now me uh, well no but even before this uh, <laughs> oh yeah like we never performed uh green light live ever oh, really not once and uh when i asked him you know if he ever wanted to do the song like when i came to atlanta on my tour yeah i was like you, you ever want to come out on stage we'd love to have you uh whenever i get a tv opportunity yeah. i reach out you don't and see do if it? you want to do it he was like, you know, I don't, I don't perform on stage. I haven't done so in years, and I don't know if I ever will. Huh. And so, is he agoraphobic, uh, or he just doesn't want to go out? Anymore? I don't know. Like, I, I've never asked him exactly what his reasoning is, yeah. but he's happy living the, the way he lives, and he doesn't really ah. want to change it. So, nice. I respect it. Hey, you got to respect somebody who doesn't want to play the big game anymore. Yeah, and it's like he could make a lot more money if he wanted to, and right. he's ch choosing maybe, not to. So maybe he's okay. Like, uh, maybe he's got. Yeah, enough. he's fine. Good. Yeah. But yeah, so like the hits keep coming, right? Yeah, we've had, uh, I mean, the biggest hit was, of course, All of Me, which was from uh, my uh, fourth big studio album, Love in the Future. And I wrote that inspired by my wife. And, and when did you meet she, her? At the time, 
she was my fiance at the time. Oh. I met her in 2006 and we started we actually met shooting a video for a song for my second album. The, the second album's called Once Again and there was a song on the album that wasn't even a single but my friend Nabil Elderkin who's a producer a, a director a, a photographer and a, and a and a producer uh he uh Loved the song, and he had a video idea for it. And at the time, he wasn't known as a director. He was just taking photos. Yeah. And uh, actually, I got to tell the backstory of how I met him. He, I met Nabil because he was squatting KanyeWest.com. So <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he was squatting the site. You know how back in the day when you know people didn't have a lot of web presence, oh, you he, would he bought it. You would be you would become famous, and you hadn't already bought your website. Yeah, and somebody uh, owned the, it with your. Somebody owned it. Right. And his only stipulation for giving Kanye his website was just let me take pictures of you. Um, and so he's this young kid. He's probably 19 or 20 at the time. And he bargains with Kanye to just hang out with us and take pictures in exchange for giving him his domain name. Yeah. And <laughs> so Kanye gets his domain name. Nabil hangs out with us and takes lots of photos. And Nabil and I become friends. And he's also starting to take photos for other people, for brands. One of the brands he was taking it for was Billabong, which is, you know, like a surfwear yeah. brand. And um, my wife um, was modeling for Billabong. Right. And she meets Nabil. Yeah. <laughs> so Nabil wants to do a video of uh, this song Stereo, not a single. He just wants to do it on spec to show people. That he can direct as okay. well. He's, as his, he's, he's a photographer at as this his, point. Uh, as his real. Yes. Right. <laughs> so he wants to show people he can direct. And he chooses to do a song called Stereo on spec for me. Yeah. And he starts showing me pictures of this woman that he had just shot. And he's like, would you like her to be your love interest in the video? And I'm like, uh, yes. Um for and life. it's Chrissy. And it's, and it's Chrissy. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I think you're going to like her. She's really cool yeah. and funny and, and all these things and beautiful. And, and so we meet, we hit it off, and um, we start dating not long after that. Uh, and we got pretty serious starting like 2007, 2008. And then I proposed in 2011, and we got married in 2013. And then All of Me comes out and becomes this massive song. Yeah. We shot the video in Italy. Yeah. And it was shot by Nabil Elderkin, the guy who introduced us um, <laughs> seven years prior. And it literally was the anniversary of the day we met seven years later that we're shooting this video. And the day after the anniversary of the day we met, we got married. It, it was that on purpose or you just see it now? No. That's it's, it, it was lucky because uh, we had planned to do the wedding at a completely different place in America. Uh, and then at, at some point we're like, why are we doing this? We don't want that many people to come to the wedding anyway. So let's make it a, a far flight for people. And, uh, and so we decided to change and get married in September. And then I do the math. At some point I figured out, oh, this is the day we met. Um, wow. Um, and it, it was the day before our wedding was the seven years uh, since the day we met. And we're shooting the video for all of me on the day before our wedding in Italy with Nabil as the director. And it was like a magical full circle moment.
That is beautiful. How's uh, how's Nabil now? Good. He's good. He's he's going to direct another video for this uh, album, and he's he's uh, directed feature films at this point. Uh, he had one at uh, I believe at Tribeca um, last year. That's probably coming out this year. Really talented guy, and uh, he's still a close family friend. Who did the camera work for the BET performance he did last night? That was Benny Boom. He he did a fantastic job. He's directed lots and lots of videos and TV. I think he's done film as well, but he's uh he's fantastic. Yeah, and and, and you guys, uh, you and your wife are getting along great. You got two kids, and they're good. Yes, everyone's they're good. They're good. The babies are good. Spending We're spending a lot of time uh, with everybody now, right? Yeah, it's like um, it could go either way because you're spending this much time with somebody, and and uh, it might expose some problems in your relationship. But I think we've been good through it. And uh, it actually has shown me how great of a mom she is, too, because you got to be way more creative when you can't send your kid to preschool every day. <laughs> yeah. when you, uh, you know, when you, it's just us always together all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's been so creative, so fun and just um, fun to be part of this crazy quarantine with. And now how's your relationship with Kanye? Good. It's fine. You know, we're not as close as we were, mostly for work reasons. We, I'm not signed to this production company anymore, and we haven't worked on an album together since uh, 2013. Um, and, um, you know, I used to tour with them. I used to be signed to this production company. We used to have all these kind of built-in reasons for us to be in the same space. And now he's in Wyoming. Uh, our right. families are still close, so we'll like you know go to their Christmas party or, yeah. or Easter party or whatever, in Wyoming? Or, or, or birthday or something. We haven't gone there yet, but uh, this, he's really only been there full time since the quarantine. But you know, in LA, uh, and so we still see each other, but not nearly as much. And obviously, we've had our public uh, disputes about um, politics, but I still love him like a brother, and I, I I'm so grateful for everything we've done together. And um, hey, do you, and, have you seen an evolution of his sort of uh, expansive uh, mental disposition? I mean, was he always like that? He wasn't. I he's he's definitely more. You know, I, I don't know how to diagnose it. He's talked about being bipolar, right? And, um, he he's talked about some of that before, and I don't know that I saw that in him. You know, at the beginning, yeah. But uh, obviously, it's something he's upfront about and he's dealing with. And uh, I don't know the ins and outs of all of that. But, but it hasn't affected uh, the core of your love for him or each other? I mean, I, I think it's I think our love is based on so much history together, so yeah. much that we are proud of that we've done together. And um, even when I disagree with him and I'm, I you know, shake my head at some of the things he says, I still have that love for him. Yeah, that's well, that's a that's a testament to a real uh, friendship. <laughs> yeah, and, and and honestly, it's like so much history. Like like we were on the road together. We were making music together when no one believed in either of us. And it, when you have that with somebody, it creates a bond that that'll stay. Yeah. And even as your life evolves, you're in different places. You still have that. Sure. And you won the um, the BET award. Now, does that? Yeah. All these awards. I mean, is it still great to win an award? I have to assume it is, right? It is still great. Like I've never won that particular award. I've never won video of the year. That's I've never won album of the year at the Grammys, for instance. Yeah. Uh, so if I were to win something like that, you've never um, won album w- of the year. No. Um, I've <laughs> album- won in my. How is that possible? I've won it. 
We'll have one in my cat. Or Kanye hasn't either. Beyonce hasn't either. Uh, we've won in our categories, right. you know, best R and B album. Oh, I or see. Whatever. Right, right, right. But but there's a cross genre uh, album uh, of the year category, and frankly, uh, black artists rarely win that. Um, it, it's been a sore spot for us <laughs> uh, over the years. And can you imagine that we've gone through the amazing creative output of Beyonce and Kanye over the last 15 years? And neither of them have won album of the year. I feel like, like it's, it's. I feel like it's, it's stunning. It's coming though. I feel. I feel like it's coming. I hope so. But it, I mean, like if Lemonade couldn't do it, if My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy couldn't do it, like all these, like yeah, yeah, really important, like critically loved, extremely popular albums from people who are, are making some of the most vital music in in their generation ever. They haven't won best album. Yeah, it feels to me though that uh, perception is changing, perhaps a bit, John. I think we'll see. I hope so. But voters are voters, and hopefully the voters will uh, will. That's what it comes down do to. Do some right? reflecting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the, just a, the uh, academy is the academy, and the and I'm part of it, and I'm I'm a trustee now on the board. But the voters are who they are. Uh, you can phase some people out if they're not still making music. And then you can try to introduce. But, yeah, but it definitely it comes down to understanding and taste and, and being able to uh, contextualize the music that's being presented in, in this yeah. particular moment. And I imagine yeah. some of them are maybe a little older. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like it was it's disproportionately older white guys. And that's fine if they're still making music, if they're still like in the business and active in the business and they know what's going on. But it's not cool if, you know, they're kind of tilting the 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 votes in a more conservative direction and they're not really uh, part of the kind of zeitgeist of who's making music in that moment. It would seem you would it would be better to have younger people. I mean, why? I mean, why is it? Yeah. And that, and, that, and I, you know, I actively try to get younger people to join. But, you know, there are rules about how people get phased out of being members of, of voting members of the Academy. And so that's on the that's the phasing out of the older set and also phasing in the new set. So but this is it's but in terms of your awards, you know, you did the the EGOT thing. You you that's you, you got all of them, the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, the Tony. Yeah. And uh and that's like that's rarely done. That's very exciting. What, now, I don't know the story behind uh the the doing Jesus Christ Superstar again. Was that you? It was um Presented to us by NBC, you know, some of the networks have been doing these live musical uh, yeah. events and some of them have gone well, some of them not so well. Uh, but uh, NBC reached out to us and said they were interested in doing a new version of Jesus Christ Superstar and would I play Jesus Christ? And I'm like, I had never thought this would be part of my future, but this sounds <laughs> kind of cool. And... I'm like, why would I turn this down? You right. Know? Yeah. It's like a really cool opportunity. It's a big challenge, um, which, you know, I think we should do things that are risky and, and, and a big challenge for us every once in a while. Um, and they presented it to me. They allowed us to produce with them and help uh, finish with the casting and make sure we were happy with the musical team. Um, and so I was like, you know what? Let's go for it. And so we rehearse for months. We uh, we feel really good about it. We but you never know how it's going to be received. We perform it live on national television, and 
it was a huge hit. It, the ratings were amazing. The reviews were amazing. The fans loved it. And then people started talking about Emmy buzz. And um, I had already gotten the Grammy, the Oscar, and the Tony part of the EGOT. And so this was the last thing I needed. And I was nominated as an actor, which I did not expect. But also uh, we were nominated uh, as producers of the Best Live Special. And um, we won that one. I did not win the Actor Award. And uh, here we are. I'm an EGOT. And uh, it's all because I decided to be a part of this Jesus Christ Superstar did, did you like the music before you did it? And did you know the show? I knew the show. I had sung some of the songs in high school show choir. Uh -huh. um, I, didn't, I didn't know all the songs, but uh, I knew a couple of them. And then I knew enough about the show. And then I, when they offered it to me, I just listened to the whole cast album again. And, uh, and it's kind of great, right? It's really good. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, it was early in the idea of doing musicals that were basically rock musicals. Right. Uh, it was one of the early pioneers of that. And it holds up. And, and we, got to sure. we got to produce it with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. They were like literally at rehearsals with us. And, and, oh, wow. uh, and uh, they won their EGOT that same day with the same award because they had, all th they had both won uh, all three aside from the Emmy before that. And so there were 12 EGOTs before that day. And, and then after that day, there were 15 and I was one of them. Big night for the EGOTs. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I actually, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, you know, I, uh, he was a fan, he's a fan of my show and, he, and I went to see Hamilton. It was yes. funny because after Hamilton, I went backstage and I said, you know, it's kind of like Jesus Christ Superstar. He's like, it's exactly like Jesus Christ. <laughs> he's like, he said, structurally, we, we use Jesus Christ Superstar. That's wild. I never knew that. Now, if I went back to see it after having done the show. Well, uh, like how Judas starts, you know, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Aaron Burr comes out yes. and he's the narrator. Like it's in and, and the, the sort of King Herod, King George, yes. the, the kind of goof. It, it's it's all there. I need to go back now, having done Jesus Christ Superstar and being so intimate with it. Now I have to go back and watch Hamilton and I'll probably notice all that stuff, too. Now, are you guys friends? It seems like you should be friends. I love Lin-Manuel. Uh, we're not close, but we we see each other probably like a few times a year. And it's always uh -huh. just a lot of love and good energy. And uh, he asked me to. He, one of the things that's interesting, I read the casting notes for uh the george washington character and he said he wanted him to be a mix of john legend and common i believe uh in the casting notes uh, when he was originally yeah. casting oh, uh, wow. hamilton and then he asked me to um do a remix of history has, has its eyes on you for uh this remix album he did for for hamilton and that was really cool that was uh, one of the only times we've actually worked together on something and then uh, other than that, uh, we just have a lot of respect for each other, see each other at different events and give big hugs and all that good stuff. That's nice. I um I did Finding Your Roots as well as you. Yes. Did you, what'd you learn? Did you learn anything new? Oh, it was so cool. I learned, um, there was this whole story, you know, any African-American, obviously slavery is going to have a, a, a part in our history. I learned about my, uh, one of my relatives or a family of relatives, they had been freed from, I believe, West Virginia at the time, or might have been, might have been Kentucky, but one of the states that borders Ohio. Uh, they had been freed um, upon the death of their uh, former uh, slaveholder, 
like how George Washington did it. You know, they they put it in their will. After I die, you know, I'm going to grant freedom to all, all the the former uh, formerly enslaved people. That isn't were, that wild that they 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 knew enough then they knew it was wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, I, after I after I can no longer get any benefit from them, I'm gonna free them. Yeah. So anyway, that's what they did, and uh, this happened to my family, and they migrated to Ohio because of it. They become free before the Civil War. It might have been like right at the we were on the cusp of the Civil War. Uh huh. The family of the slave owner gets mad, and they try to come back and get it, get my family members. And basically kidnap kidnap them back to the South. Yeah. And Ohio literally fought in court to make sure that my family members were able to come back to Ohio and be free. And uh, it was like a real court battle. I knew nothing about it. Henry Louis Gates was able to find that out by doing wow. research. And uh, that was a cool story. You do a lot of... Um you know, work around criminal justice reform. How, how did that become the focus of your particular philanthropy? Well, part of it just was from personal experience, uh, knowing what my mom went through when she had a drug addiction issue, knowing that people going through those issues need help. They don't need to be locked up. They need, yeah. uh, they need someone who can uh, help them deal with the mental health issues that got them there in the first place and, and help them uh, uh, figure out a way to, to kick their habit. Uh, it's a more of a medical issue than it is a, a criminal issue. And sure. seeing that, um, that definitely informed some of my personal empathy for so many other families that are dealing with it. But also, uh, I did a lot of reading. I, I read about what was going on. I got outraged by reading it. Uh, I read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and other books that really just got me mad about the situation. I didn't know, because you know, like growing up in your neighborhood, you know about one of the drug dealers that got locked up. You know about this guy that got in trouble. You know uh, about family right. members that get in trouble. And you always kind of just say, oh, they messed up, so they got in trouble. And that's how this works. But then when you read about the system, you read about the systems and how they've been applied, uh, particularly in the black community, uh, you realize how much injustice has gone into it. Of course, and uh, if you if you're reading about it and you have any empathy and any any sense of morality, it gets you upset, and um, and so I got upset and decided I wanted to do something about it. So we started Free America. Uh, we started going around the country, talking to all the stakeholders in the criminal justice system. We called it a listening and learning tour. We went around, listened, and learned. We talked to lots of organizers and activists. We still talk to them all the time. And we decided, you know, these are some of the things we believe in. We want to end money bail. We want to end uh, life without parole uh, for juveniles. We want to basically um, decarcerate all juveniles whenever possible. You know, yeah. we want uh, to legalize uh, drugs as much as possible and also treat drugs as a medical issue, decriminalize them. Um, and... Um, you know, those are some of the things we believe and we've been fighting for in states and localities all around the country. We've also gotten involved in district attorney races because we uh, the more we talk to folks, we realize how much uh, district attorneys have an impact on the entire system. And they do they do plea deals uh, for almost all the cases that come through their system. And so them using their discretion prosecutorially 
is such a huge deal. And they have the power within their office to really reduce the incarceration rate just by making different policy decisions about how they go after certain crimes and what they pursue when they go after certain crimes. So we decided to start getting involved in district attorney elections. So we helped elect a progressive DA in Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, I believe Orlando or Jacksonville, one of those, uh, Houston, uh, all over the country. And we're working to get a, a more progressive DA here in Los Angeles as well uh, this fall. And uh, that's part of the reform we want to see. And we're just out there trying to make it happen. That's, that's, uh, that's great. That's doing, the, that's doing the big work. And the same people that, you know, have been working on that are some of the same people that are talking about reimagining public safety when it comes to policing and other aspects of the justice system. And so when you hear us talking about defunding the police, a lot of that conversation is around uh, taking the money, you know, six billion dollar budget in Los Angeles taking some of that money or a large portion of that money and saying, let's invest in things that actually make it less likely for people to commit crime in the first place. Let's invest in their health. Let's invest in making sure they have a place to live and uh, food on the table. Let's invest in pre-K so that uh, young people uh, are given a, a, a good start. You see the results throughout their schooling and throughout their lives when you're able to give them quality preschool. So, we make choices as a society about how we spend our tax dollars. That's what politics is, essentially. It's deciding how much to tax us, and then b- based on that pool of money, what do we spend it on? And right now, we think we spend way too much on policing. We spend sure. way too much on jails and prisons as well. And and we're saying, uh, with this defund movement, saying move some of those funds, a large portion of those funds, to things that would prevent the crime that you're worried about in the first place. And you won't. And people have a police. shot to uh, to function in society. Yeah, exactly. Make yeah. society healthier, safer, more loving, and we'll have less crime anyway. And we yeah. won't need as many police. Absolutely. Thanks for talking to me, John. Thank you. And I, I love the new record. Thank you, Mark. I love the show. Great to be on it finally, and uh, uh, enjoy. Okay. Take care. Take care. John Legend. What a mensch. What a mensch, as we say in the Yiddish. Great guy. Great artist. And the album's really, it's really good. And you can get that album, Bigger Love, wherever you get music. And now I will play some music. Kinda. Unproduced music. Improvisational music. Just a little, little kind of John Lee Hooker jump thing perhaps with a little taste of diddly
Boomer lives. Yeah.